belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for November 28th, 2021 is called, What Are We Hoping For? This is the first week of Advent for 2021. The speaker is John Ray, and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. There is the famous line in the Shawshank Redemption where one of the characters turns to the other and says, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. Which sounds a really strange way to start a teaching on hope when we're that's what we're focusing on this first week of Advent. And welcome if you're listening on the podcast um, or watching on the live stream. My name is John Ray here at Grace Church. This Sunday starts the first week of Advent, the start of the church's liturgical year. It's a time to pause and to think back on the past year as well as look ahead to the one that's coming. It's usually a time of renewed hope. Hope that things that hurt us or held us back will be left behind and things that we want or dream about will soon become a reality, not yet again postponed. What we hope for and how we hope for it reveals much about us. In fact, if we really want to know how much it, how much, if we really knew how much it revealed, we might not be so quick to tell others what it is we hope for. But hope happens. And while, yes, hope can be a really dangerous thing, it's also essential. We cannot live without hope. When all hope is lost, our very lives are in danger. So how are we to hope correctly? How are we to hope righteously? Well, I think we get some direction in the text that we'll see this morning. You see, what we hope for is guided by what we perceive to be the need. What is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Those are the things, when we determine those things, that's what we set our hope on. The question is, where is our hope centered? The question for ourselves to reflect on this season is, Really, where is our hope centered? Who is included in our hope? And who is left out? Does what we hope for only benefit us? And does our hope cost us anything? We're going to ask a lot of questions this morning about this. If you want to turn to Luke 3, the first six verses, Luke starts a narrative dealing with John the Baptist here, the one who proclaimed that the hope was coming, the hope was near. And I'm reading from the message this morning, starting with verse 1, chapter 3 of Luke. In the 15th year of the rule of Caesar, Tiberius, it was while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of Iotria, Trachontus, Licinius and ruler of Abilene, during their chief pre- during the chief priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, John, Zachariah's son, out in the desert at the time, received a message from God. 
He went all through the country around the Jordan River preaching a baptism of life-changing leading to forgiveness of sins as described in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Thunder in the desert, prepare God's arrival. Make the road smooth and straight. Every ditch will be filled in, every bump smoothed out. The detour straightened out, all the ruts paved over. Everyone will be there to see the parade of God's salvation. This, of course, is almost a direct quote of Isaiah 40, which we studied earlier um, a few months ago when we were in the book of Isaiah. And it talks about this way being cleared out, how the wilderness was going to become welcoming because we see time and time the trope of wilderness in the Bible is used as a place of wandering, a place of chastising, a place of relinquishing a place of great effort and danger. And Isaiah is proclaiming that this place, no, we're going we're gonna to do away with that. We're going to raise up the valleys. We're going to lower the hills. We're going to bring water to where it's dry. Food and plenty where there is scarcity. Well, what did this mean for the original audience? Why? Why would Isaiah proclaim such a thing? And, and going back to those of us who studied through Isaiah, we remember that especially this verse is attributed to the time where the people were in exile. Israel, Israel had been carried off to Babylon. So they were a people who weren't just metaphorically waiting for freedom. They weren't just waiting for some kind of internal thing. They were, they were waiting for actual physical return, freedom from oppression, from being carried off by an invading army to a foreign land. They were oppressed and in exile. They wanted a savior the only way they could imagine, a military savior, someone to ride in on a white horse, kill their enemy, win in battle, set up government, politics, and rule that would benefit them. They're searching for this in a very real, tangible sense. This is not a far off hope. This is not a hope when I die. This is I need hope now. That's where these words were written. And as we talked about a little bit in the teaching team, this prophecy for this wasn't some prediction necessarily like a future telling of it. It was also calling people to align and understand what is happening right now, describing the situation, giving them eyes to see more clearly what their situation was. The really subversive, the really radical thing about this prophecy is this declaration that all will be included. All will be included. Y'all, this question of who is in, who is out is something that human beings have been using to divide and destroy, to oppress and to exile throughout our history. Even in the most minor ways, everything from the junior high lunchroom table to the who's coming to my birthday party and who's not, to who can be on the team, to who can live in our neighborhood, to who's allowed to cross our borders, to who gets justice and who doesn't, who gets access to things and who doesn't. We're constantly asking this question, who is in, who will be, should be, and 
can be included. At the root of this is the question, what does it mean to be human? Who is created in God's image? Who shares in this? And the resounding proclamation of the prophet is everyone. Is all. Is that the kingdom of God is for everyone. There may not be a more challenging thing to hope in than that. It, it does, in a way, torment us when we see people, we watch helplessly, that literally we as individuals can do nothing to help people who are excluded, who are oppressed, who are exiled, left without justice, oppressed through systems and agencies and visions. And so we reduce our hope. We shrink our hope down. Hey, if I just, it's just enough, you know, I'll just hope for my family. I'll just hope for me or I'll just hope for the people like me in the place. And I'll be satisfied with that. That cost us less to do that. And yet the prophet crying out in the wilderness is continually saying, nope, it's all, it's all people. That must have been a hard thing to realize, hard thing for the people of Israel to wrap their brain about. I, I mean, we see from the, the biblical text that very few people got it. We can't blame them. We don't get it. We don't. They didn't seem to. And then we get to the time of Jesus when these words were written that we read in Luke. Well, what did it mean to them? Well, they weren't in exile any longer, but they were occupied. They lived in an occupied territory. A foreign ruler had come in and set up their government, the people weren't in exile, but they were occupied. They were still oppressed. And in many ways, I think they were looking for that same political, military salvation to come. Someone to ride in on the white horse, kick all the bad guys out of town, bring justice back. But again, it was focused also in their, in their particular people. It was us against them that continual dichotomy that has driven us as human beings, us versus them. Then Jesus comes in. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't come in on a white horse. You know that, right? He doesn't come in as a political leader per se, even though he is very involved in the politics and the idea of how people organize themselves how people set up systems. He's very involved in that. The way that he goes about, who he includes, how he breaks down social barriers, includes people with that. And I and I ask the question, you know, did Jesus just stop at the spiritual here? Did he just spiritualize this? Did he take the message of Isaiah, where people were constantly wanting something real, something physical, and just say, hey, you know what? That's just a metaphor. That whole kingdom of God thing is just a metaphor. It's just really when you die, everything will be okay. You just got to suffer through stuff in this life as it is. Did, did Jesus do that? And you may think I'm asking a rhetorical question, and I, I kind of am, but at the same time, I'm kind of not. I, I really wonder somehow, or sometimes, are we missing it, wanting 
things to change here and now. Wouldn't it just be easier, especially those of us who have privilege, who have position, we've got cars and homes and food and schools, and we're not a we're not an occupied country. We're not living in exile. Wouldn't it be easier just to say, "Hey, you know what? The stuff Jesus was saying is great. Go to heaven when we die. Everything will be happy there. It'll all work out then. Let's just grit our teeth, get through this life." We got it. Let's just count our blessings. We've got it good. Let's just be satisfied. I don't think Jesus would agree. I don't think the prophets would agree. But it's dangerous to hope for that, y'all. It's dangerous to hope that things are going to change. It's dangerous to hope that we're going to see the injustice that we experience, the oppression, the systematic excluding of certain people because of where they were born, what their gender is, socioeconomic class, sexual orientation, gender issues, all these things, man. We're constantly just cutting and dividing. Who's in, who's out? It's dangerous to hope that somehow that can be reconciled, somehow that there is enough room for everybody, somehow we can make it. And you know what? We all love that idea of the level of the low places being brought up. That's easy to hope for. I'm just going to be real here, right? Those of us who have experienced wealth, privilege, it's, it's easy for us to get very enamored with the idea of, hey, we're going to go help those people come. A lot of our nonprofits, a lot of our ministries are based on that idea. Hey, let's go reach out. Let's go lift up with that. We can kind of see ourselves, we can feel good about ourselves in that. Right? It may cost us something, but we're still above in a way. The challenging part is the hills being brought low. That's something we don't talk a lot about. That's where, that's where hope really starts to get costly. Is hey, what am I willing to give up? Not just give away. What am I willing to give up? Maybe see some of those hills lowered so that it's more even. Because the reality is it's both and. It's both and with that. Now, I'm not advocating for any certain political persuasion or anything like that. I'm, I'm listening. I'm trying to listen to the voice of the prophet. I'm trying to watch what Jesus did. You'll hear me come back to it time and time again because it, it was the psalm of the early church, the, the Philippians 2, the great kenosis of God, the God who left his throne, set aside God to take on the form of a human being. This is the ultimate lowering of the mountain. You know, this is what we see in Jesus' life. Is it's both and. Yes, was he reaching down to lift up? Absolutely, but he also came down to do that. 
And I say all this in the context of what are we really hoping for? Are we just hoping for others to get what we get? Are we really hoping, hey, everybody is going to be included? And that is going to cost me something with that. And the question I have for us, we, we kind of came up with this in our teaching team. This year for Advent, where are our lives intersecting Advent? Where, where are our lives intersecting this hope? It's just another way of asking, what are we, what are we really hoping for? What does that reveal about us? Where are we setting our hope? Well, here at Grace Church, we ask, what does this mean for us? What, is, what should this mean for us? I wrote something recently about, about the church. Just examining where we are now, I said, I said, we are incredibly grateful. We are grateful for the goodness of God in sustaining us through one of the most difficult and challenging times in recent history. We've all experienced it. Our vision for belong, believe, become is strong, is strong and established. Our core group of participants is weathered and tested. We have lived well within our means financially since the sale of our building on 2828. Teaching team is solid. Worship team continues to lead with excellence. Stacy and Roland have gone above and beyond with tech this whole time. We have well-established practices and a commitment to a liturgical calendar that helps guide us. And we've established a track record of looking deeply into Scripture and responding with confession, repentance, and faith. However faultingly or slowly, we are growing deep roots. Even though we have been nomadic over these past few months, Pratt Place and outdoors and on Zoom and in parking lots and places like that, our roots are going deeper. But we also have challenges. And when we, when we consider these challenges, this is where we have to ask, what are we hoping for? Not just as individuals, but what are we hoping for as a church growing forward? Because I really believe we're entering a new season as a church. It may take us a while. But our hopes are being realigned. And, and it is essential as we start that process that we ask ourselves, what is it we are hoping for? And I'm not here to give you easy answers this morning. I'm saying this is something I want to examine during this season. What are we hoping for as a church? And how do those hopes align with what we see in Scripture? The hopes that the church has had, the hopes that the Word guides us to. Well, I quoted Stephen King this morning. He, he actually wrote Shawshank Redemption. A lot of people don't know that, but comes from a Stephen King story. But he was really just riffing on Nietzsche. Nietzsche once wrote, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Sounds like Nietzsche, doesn't it? And I get it. I get it. Sometimes it is just easier not to hope. Just easier to settle. Shrink our hopes down. Make them 
more and more exclusive for who they include. It's easy to do that. It, it relieves a lot of demands for sacrifice, for pain, for waiting. And I thought about this quote from Nietzsche, and I, and I wondered, what if we asked generations of Israelites about that quote? What would they say? I mean, after all, they, they spent generation after generation of waiting, longing, enduring, oppression, exile, false messiahs, and fallible kings. Did hoping help them? Or did it hurt them? Did it just prolong their torment? as Nietzsche said. And what about us? Are we crazy to put our hope, our deepest longing, in something so far beyond just our own happiness and so far beyond our own ability to provide? Are we crazy to put our hope in something more than just our own safety and security? Wouldn't it be more humane to be satisfied with getting what we can get for ourselves and not be so concerned about the other stuff or other people. Well, Isaiah says no. Advent says no. Jesus says no. They all say that in the church of two millennia with them say, hold on to hope. Don't let go of it. Don't let it shrink. Don't let it be compromised. Don't let it become exclusive to those who you see fit and look like you. Don't quit hoping and making sure that you are hoping right, hoping for the right things, the real things, the things of God the hopes of the kingdom, the promises of the Messiah. Let your longings be formed by the Spirit, not just by what you can see or the false promises of the world or the fleeting wants of the flesh. Hold fast to hope in this Jesus we proclaim and pledge allegiance to, the one we spend our lives apprenticed to, the only one who offers something truly worth hoping for. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We are going to exercise this hopefulness because it's a muscle that needs to be exercised, y'all. It doesn't just happen. We have to be intentional about the cultivation of it. After we've examined it, we need to cultivate it. We cultivate it by participation, by showing up, by doing the things we talked about, getting the Advent devotional, listening to the sacred music, participating in these things and singing these songs. We participate in hope every time we come to the table, every time this meal is served. By taking it, we are setting our hope afresh on that which lasts. We also practice it by welcoming people into our community, especially those who are unwelcome, marginalized, objectified, or in any way made to feel less than. Belonging is rooted in hope, the practice of hope. Hope that God's promises can may be true here and now, not just later on. 
And it is a practice not only that embraces others, but also recognizes that we're not quite where we should be without them. Belonging leads to becoming, and that leads to believing. And then it starts all over again. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.